Let's turn in our Bibles to our final study in this 26th installment of studies, John chapter 17. Not all prayers could be considered true prayer. What I mean by that is we can be talking, we can be venting what we want to say to God, but it's not always necessarily a sincere form of prayer. Here's an example of some prayers that I found like that. One would say, Lord, help me to relax about insignificant details beginning tomorrow at exactly 1141.23 Eastern Standard Time. Or, Lord, help me to consider other people's feelings, even if most of them are hypersensitive. God, help me to take responsibility for my own actions, even though it's usually not my fault. God, help me not to try to run everything, but if you need some help, just ask. Lord, help me to take things in life more seriously, especially parties and dancing. Lord, give me patience. Give it to me right now. Lord, help me not to be a perfectionist. Did I spell that correctly, Lord? Lord, help me to do what I can and trust you for the rest. Do you mind putting that in writing? And finally, Lord, help me to be open-minded to others' ideas, wrong as they may be. Now you see, some of us treat prayer sort of like it's holy chewing gum. We want to see how far we can stretch it. We're talking, we're praying to God, but often we have our own agenda when it comes to prayer. I found myself oftentimes praying either vaguely or distractedly, going through the motions but not really connecting with God. And i got to stop and go, wait a minute, I'm just mouthing words. There's no authenticity here. Back up. I take that back. Lord, this is what I want to say. There was a five-year-old girl who attended a wedding. It was the first time she ever attended formal church. She had been in Sunday school, but this was the first time she was in big church. And the minister said, let's pray. Everybody bowed their head. And she looked around and saw everybody's heads down and eyes to the ground. And she said to Grandma, Grandma, what are they looking for? And that's a good question to ask. What are you looking for? What is the goal when it comes to prayer? Now, the truth is, we will pray about whatever is important to us. Whatever our true priorities in life are, that's what you'll find us dialoguing to God about. We pray according to what we feel is the most important thing in our life at the time. Jesus also prayed according to priorities. This is His final will and testament. These are the final things the Savior, before He goes to the cross, prays about. And in this section, He's praying for you and for me. So you might say, these are the priorities of Jesus Christ for your life and for my life. Max Lucado said, undefined priorities are at the root of our success or failure frustration. You know what that's like. We don't exactly know what we're aiming at, so we shoot an arrow out and say, yeah, that's what I meant to hit, and put a bullseye around where it hit. Rather than saying, here are my priorities, this is what I'm after. 
And we're going to examine those tonight as we close out our study in this. But just to keep it in perspective, the prayer, if you remember, is divided into three sections. Verses 1 through 5 is the first section. Verses 6 through 19 is the second section. Verse 20 through 26 is the third section. The first section, Jesus prays for himself. He prays that he might have the glory back that he had with the Father. That prehistoric, co-existent, co-eternal glory, he wanted it back. The second, beginning in verse 6 through verse 19, Jesus prays for his disciples who had been following him while on the earth. He prays for security. Keep them, Father. He prays for purity. Sanctify them, Father. And now, in this last section we're about to read, Jesus prays for us. We are on his mind. Nothing is more exciting to me, or I should say humbling to me, than to realize that my Savior had me on his mind, and you'll see why. Beginning in verse 20, Jesus prays, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me, and I have loved them as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. I have declared to them your name, And will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. As we close out this prayer tonight, we want to look at the scope of Jesus' prayer for us, the substance of it, and finally the summation of it all. The scope is simply this. Jesus prayed, for the most part in this prayer, except for the first five verses, for believers, for followers. It was an exclusive prayer, the last portion, the greatest portion. Jesus prayed for those who would follow him. In fact, if you look at verse 19, it is very selective. Verse 9, excuse me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In fact, that's true, isn't it? We never find Jesus praying for the world once. In fact, what is recorded of Jesus is that he prayed for his disciples on many occasions. The only time he prayed for the world was on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And so he says, I'm praying for them, my believers. The praying for the world is up to us now. That's our job. Jesus came to atone for the world and buy us back to him. And now it is our privilege As Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people, for kings and all who are in authority, that you might live a quiet and peaceable life, 
So we're to do that, but Jesus prays for his own. Specifically, he is praying for second generation believers, third generation believers, fourth generation believers. It is as if Jesus, beginning in verse 20, looks through the lens of world evangelization and sees what will happen in the future, knowing that these disciples are going to go out and take the gospel to the world like Jesus told them to do. I want you to keep your marker here or keep your finger here and go back to John chapter 1 for a moment. I want you to notice a pattern In this very first chapter, in fact, the very first disciples are called. In John 1, verse 35, again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Look, or behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned, seeing them following, said, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, son of Jonah. You will be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Rocky. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Do you see the pattern? John the Baptist told Andrew. Andrew told Peter. Jesus found Philip. Philip told Nathanael. And now, in this prayer, Jesus is anticipating a lot more of that going on knows that these guys are going to go out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the whole world and share the gospel with people and write letters and write gospels under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And those gospels, those letters will be preserved and lots of other people like us will read them, will hear their words and will believe in Jesus Christ. And even today, after 2,000 years of church history... And 8 billion people on this globe we call the earth, people are still hearing the message. And a new generation is birthed because they believe in Him. Now this brings up the importance of something. Go back and notice these two words together. I'm going to focus on them for a few moments. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word This shows us the importance of their word. What Jesus is referring to is not only what these disciples are going to say, but what they're going to write. They're going to be writing a New Testament, right? That's going to be preserved. 
And just as Jesus referred 64 times to the Old Testament as the Word of God by saying, It is written, or the Scriptures cannot be broken, or one jot and one tittle won't pass from the law till all fulfilled and upheld it as God's Word, now Jesus anticipates the writing of a New Testament. Their words will be written. Their words will be preserved. And others will listen to it. In fact, that's exactly how the early church viewed the words of the apostles. As scripture. It wasn't like 500, 600 years elapsed and we decided, you know what? We had to get those letters and call them scripture. They're our scripture. They were considered scripture when the New Testament was even being written. For instance, Paul, the rabbi, converted in one passage, in fact, two or three I found, but one I'm going to share, quotes both the Old Testament and the New Testament together. Under the same umbrella, he calls it the Scripture. Listen carefully. It's 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. Paul says, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. That's Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. That's the fifth book of Moses. And, he continues, the laborer is worthy of his wages. That's Luke chapter 10, verse 7, something that Jesus said. He quotes Luke, who interviewed eyewitnesses and wrote a gospel, the eyewitnesses being the apostles. So in the same breath, Paul elevates what Moses said and what Luke wrote as being on the same par as being Scripture or the Word of God. So their word, their word is biography, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, history, the book of Acts, epistolary, the letters of the epistles of James, John, Peter, Jude, Paul, etc., and prophecy, the book of Revelation. All of that is implied by that phrase. And I'm bringing that up. Because I want you to know that even Jesus anticipated this writing and it is trustworthy, it is reliable, it is scripture. Sir Frederick Kenyon, who was the director and principal librarian of the British Museum and was second to none when it came to being an authority of ancient manuscripts, the best, he said, no other ancient book has anything like such early and plentiful testimony to its text. And no unbiased scholar would deny that the text of the New Testament, their words, that has come down to us is substantially sound. I want you to hear that because I think that's exactly the reason why it is attacked today. The New Testament is attacked all over the place because people still read it and still believe what it says. It changes lives. My father-in-law sitting in this room tonight, he came to faith in Christ by reading the Gospels. He said, I want to see if Jesus is a positive individual. And he read through the Gospels. And that night he was convicted and gave his life to Christ. These work. Their words people are still believing. I found out something interesting. In Indiana, the state of Indiana, there are six inns in the state park system. And in each of the hotel rooms in these inns is a Gideon Bible. 
The Department of Natural Resources has been pressured by the ACLU to put inside each of the hotel rooms where there is a Gideon Bible a pamphlet of warning. A picture of the Gideon Bible is on the pamphlet and it says, Warning! Literal belief in this book can endanger your health and life. The pamphlet goes on to say, it advises the Bible is violent, racist, and a sexist fable. Well, the Gideon Society estimates that 3,000 people are affected by one Bible that is placed in a hospital room or a hotel room. And this year they are putting 58 million copies in hotel rooms around the world. Their words are still changing lives. Before we move on, there is another point to be made in that very first verse of this last section. I do not pray for these alone, but also those who will believe through their word. That is, through the agency of their conversation, their preaching, their writing. This is trickle-down evangelism. That is, just like what we saw that pattern in John chapter 1, that continues throughout history. What they did there in John chapter 1, they did when Jesus left the earth. They went all over the world, and the baton was passed to the next generation, and now you and I have it. We have the baton of truth, the gospel, and it's our turn, so to speak. What are we going to do with this treasure called the gospel? Well, we need to let it trickle down. We need to pass on those words to others. I'll show you how it works. You already know that you have probably preached the gospel to somebody who preached the gospel to somebody, and, and you've maybe watched that before. Here's a dramatic illustration. A man by the name of Edward Kimball wanted to share his faith with a shoe salesman. This was 1856. He was a Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball. He had never really done this. He felt quite antsy about it. He was pacing outside the, the store of this shoe store down in uh, Chicago, asking God for boldness, got enough strength, went in, preached the gospel with a young salesman, led him to Christ. The young salesman, of course, was named Dwight Lyman Moody. And D.L. Moody became not only a preacher, but a great evangelist. And one night as D.L. Moody, led to Christ by Kimball, was preaching, somebody in the crowd, a young F.B. Meyer, was listening. And F.B. Meyer went into the preaching ministry, wrote books, etc. F.B. Meyer was preaching one night, and a young college student was in the audience. His name is Wilbur Chapman. Wilbur Chapman came to Christ that night. Wilbur Chapman became a Bible scholar, a New Testament respected writer and scholar, and also worked for the YMCA as sort of an overseeing chaplain. And he decided to hire an ex-baseball player by the name of Billy Sunday to be an evangelist for the YMCA. And Billy Sunday was in Charlotte, North Carolina, holding a meeting for businessmen. And at that meeting, the businessmen decided to get together and sponsor a crusade for their city, hosted by a famous evangelism of the time, Mordecai Ham. And Mordecai Ham preached the gospel that night. And a young, lanky, 
blonde-headed kid walked forward and accepted Christ named Billy Graham. All because Edward Kimball took the baton and passed it on in evangelism. And that's our legacy, folks, the gospel. Evangelism is the legacy of the Christian church. We can go out and do humanitarian things and collect shoeboxes, and all of that is good, but it's a gateway to share the goods of the gospel. Give them the truth of the gospel. It's been well said, give a man a dollar and you'll cheer his heart. Give a man a dream and you'll challenge his heart. Give a man the gospel and you can change his heart. Edward Kimball did that, and it trickled down. You know what? It still is, isn't it? So many people have come to faith in Christ through Billy Graham, and truth be told, and you'll see it in heaven, I'm sure, when it's all in front of you and you see those that you have led to Christ or planted a seed, and what happened with those, and on and on it goes. How rewarding. Now let's look in the... 21st verse down to the 24th verse. This is the substance. This is the meat of what Jesus prays for. That they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved me, loved them just as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. The substance of Jesus' prayer is unity in the present, glory in the future. He prays for something that makes some of us a little uncomfortable, and that's unity. That they may be one, as we are one, we think, oh no, I haven't always done that. Well, back off just a minute. Let me tell you what that doesn't mean, and then I'll tell you what it does mean. I don't think Jesus is referring necessarily to organizational unity. That if you organize the church just right, and everybody is organized in every specific group and meeting and and leader, etc., that that is the unity he is praying about. Some people think that if we could just get rid of all denominations, you probably heard this sentiment, Get rid of all denominations, all barriers. Create one big super church under one big umbrella. Get rid of all the things that divide us. Let's just all have a big group hug and we'll all sing Kumbaya. And that's what Jesus is referring to. I don't think so. And I'll tell you why I don't think so. Because the early church is my example. Talk about a disorganized group. The early church in Jerusalem had no organization. They didn't have a group of elders at first. They didn't have a board at first. They didn't have ushers at first. They didn't have a Sunday school department at first. They didn't have police directing traffic like we do on Sundays. They didn't even have a New Testament. And and secondly, history records what happens when the church becomes too centralized in its organizational structure. 
A man by the name of Constantine in 305 A.D. and his successors decided to organize the church so that by the time of the Middle Ages there was one umbrella organization and one central head in Europe. It was very, very organized and one. But if you know your church history, was that a pure time? Was the church strong at that time? Only outwardly. Only economically, but they were impoverished and weak spiritually on the inside. So let's set that aside. When Jesus says that they may be one as we are one, I don't think he's referring to organizational unity, nor do I think he means uniformity. Because if you think he does, you're going to be very, very disappointed. If you think that we're all going to see eye to eye on every doctrine, every style of worship, every song that we should sing or should not sing, ain't going to happen. Never has. And it never will. By the way, if you're a part of any kind of a family at all and you had brothers and sisters, you remember that even in your own family, you didn't always get along perfectly, did you? There was a night person and a morning person. There was a loud person and a soft person. There was an obnoxious person and a non-obnoxious person. Maybe, maybe a few. And so it is in the church family. We're not going to agree on every topic. There are some that are staunch pre-tribulationists, like me. Others are post-toasties. Some are fuzzy fundamentalists. Others are kooky charismatics. Some like high formal worship with the stained glass and the robes and the candles. Others don't. And honestly... I thank God that there are so many different kinds of churches out there that have all of that available so people can go to them. Otherwise, they'd all come here. (laughs) It's great that there are so many different styles of worship to fit all those different kinds of people. And if you think we're all going to agree on everything, it's unrealistic. Somebody once said, if two people agree on everything, one of them isn't thinking. I like what St. Augustine wrote. He said, In essentials, there should be unity. In non-essentials, there should be liberty. But in all things, there should be charity. What does it mean then, exactly, to be one as we are one, the Father and the Son? We'll go back to verse 8. Look at a couple verses with me, and I think you'll get it. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, They have received them. They know surely that I came forth from you and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours. Yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. It is the unity that is based on the revelation that Jesus gave the disciples about who he was and who the Father was. In other words, I'm a Christian the same way you're a Christian. That's the unity. I'm a Christian because I believe Jesus is my Savior, the only Savior. And you're a Christian because you believe Jesus is your Savior, the only Savior. We both believe in his work. That's the unity. It's not a unity we have to produce. It's a unity that already exists because of the finished work. You don't have to look for it. We need to get more unity. It's there. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 4. He said, There is one body. 
There is one Spirit. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one baptism. There is unity. We have to recognize it. And we have to promote it. The same book, Paul said, keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But it's already there. We have to walk in it. I've experienced this around the world. I've been in China with Chinese Christians. I've been in the Middle East with Arab Christians. And in Jerusalem with Jewish Christians. I've been in India with Indian Christians. Monday I'm going to Russia and I'll be with Russian Christians. And there's so many different backgrounds, styles, foods, methods. But I have an immediate sense that I'm with brothers and sisters. We are connected. There is unity. There is one body. So, we divide over essentials, but we don't divide over non-essentials. There are essentials we must divide over. Who Jesus is, how you are saved, and that is the line of demarcation that says you are a Christian or are not. We will divide over that. And every time we divide over essentials, we grow stronger. But every time we divide over non-essentials, which song should be sung? Should you baptize forward, backward, sprinkle, dunk, keep under for five minutes, or whatever? <laughs> All that will do is serve to weaken us, not strengthen us. There was a family where the brothers, I grew up with three older brothers, and I can relate to this. These boys fought all the time. All the time. And one particular day, Dad was watching these kids go at it. So he went to the oldest, strongest son, and he gave him a stick. He said, break this. And out of anger, he was still seething from the argument, the older boy snapped it easily. Then the father took two sticks together and said, break them. And the kid snapped them. Gave him three sticks, and then four sticks, and then five, and then six. And soon, that older, stronger brother had to admit defeat. He couldn't break all the sticks together. Then the father got his sons together, and he cautioned them by saying, Unity is strength. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Anyone can overthrow you one by one, but if you stand together, you will prevail in strength. When we do that, when we recognize the unity over the essentials and not get hung up on the non-essentials, then verse 21 will happen, that the world may believe that you sent me. Unity in the church proves the veracity of the gospel message. When people see it lived out by our unity, they go, okay, it works. It works. I can see it. There it is. We live before watchful eyes, don't we? And we need to give them something to look at. Verse 24 is the second thing Jesus prays for, future glory. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. What's that going to be? That's heaven, right? That's when we see the glorified Christ. Now listen to this. It's all part of the same context. If we're going to spend forever with each other, that means we're going to have to be around each other a long time. Doesn't it make sense that we'd want to learn how to get along now? 
it's well known that John Wesley and George Whitfield were opposing voices of their time. In fact, they would often argue by printing letters in the local papers publicly, arguing back and forth. One day somebody went up to George Whitfield and said, do you think you're going to see John Wesley in heaven? He said, no. He said, no, and I'll tell you why. John Wesley will be so close to the throne of God and I will be so far back, I'll probably never see him. Those are nice words and that is a great attitude. But you would think those two giants of the faith could unite their hearts here. But it's not always easy. Like a note that was found in a pew in a Scottish church summed it all up. A Scottish woman wrote, To dwell above with those we love will certainly be glory. But to dwell below with those we know, now that's another story. (laughs) That's not always easy, is it? But we're going to be in heaven with each other. And if you have a ticket tonight to heaven by believing in Jesus Christ, you are going to go to heaven. If you trust Him as your Savior, you're going to go to heaven, guaranteed. How can you be so sure, you ask? Because Jesus prayed for it. The Father always answers the prayers of the Son. In fact, He uses a very strong word, I desire that they'll be with me. It's a thoughtful choice and an intense word I desire. Every time a Christian dies, this part of verse 24 is answered as that Christian soul goes to heaven. As Roy's did just the other day. Look at the last two verses and we close with now the sum of this entire section, really the sum of this prayer. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus tells us what we know. We know God. We know truth. We've received what Jesus gave us. Interesting, Jesus insists the world doesn't know the truth. They don't know it. Gnosko is the word, know by experience. The world may know a lot of stuff. In fact, 97% of everything that has been known in history is now known today. But the most vital part is knowing God. Because we know God and we know God's love, we therefore love. That's the emphasis of the last verse. The love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. This is how it all sums up. If the love of God is in you, you will love God's truth. Their words. If the love of God is in you, you will love the world of humanity that Jesus came to die for. If the love of God is in you, you will love God's people and promote unity. And if the love of God is in you, you will have eternity in your hearts as you look forward and I look forward to heaven. Somebody was right when he said, love is the circulatory system of the body of Christ. How's the blood flowing in your life? So, we notice something, don't we? We notice that the series ends with love even as it began with love. It began by Jesus washing the disciples' feet, a demonstration of His love. It ends with Jesus about to be arrested, going to the cross to give the ultimate demonstration of His love And the prayer closes with Jesus praying that the Father and the Son's love 
may be in us. Now let's take it all out of the stained glass for a minute. If you can't love other Christians, how can you love lost souls? How can we love people that we don't even know if we can't even love the ones that we do know? Or, even better yet, if we can't love Christians, how can we do what Jesus said when He said, Love your enemies. Love your enemies. So we are called to love one another. John remembered this, no doubt. He was there when Jesus prayed it. He wrote this some years later, 1 John 3. If we love our Christian brothers and sisters, that proves that we have passed from death to life. But have you noticed that sometimes it is easier to love people we haven't seen than it is to love people we have seen? And this is because we love them generically, you know. We haven't been really around them. If we were around them, it might be different. Like Linus said in Peanuts, he said, he goes, I love the whole world. It's just people I can't stand. And we might say, I love those people in that culture of that country and that group, and I want to, that's good. But we're called to love one another. A church historian named Tertullian, and I close with this, said at that very volatile period of early Christian history, latter Roman history, The Roman government saw the church growing at such great numbers they were afraid that there would be disloyalty among Christians for the Roman Empire. So the Roman government, get this, decided to send spies into the church assemblies to observe their daily lifestyle and to write to the Roman government their findings. Tertullian said that one of these spies visited an assembly and wrote to the emperor, These Christians are very strange people. They they could have written that about us, couldn't they? They meet together in an empty room to worship. Think about that. They do not have an image. They speak of one by the name of Jesus, who is absent, but whom they seem to be expecting at any time. And my... My, how they love Him and how they love one another. Jesus' prayer was answered. Is it answered in your life? Know, know their words. And knowing their words, tell other people. Trickle-down evangelism. And then preserve the unity that is to be among us by having your hope fixed on the future, the glory Jesus prayed about, and by loving each other sacrificially. Let's pray. Lord, what a great series we have had the last six months since September 8th. Looking at the night that changed everything, surely these disciples were never the same after this this period of intensive discipleship that the Lord Jesus spent with those men. And then to cap it all off, not only instructing them, but praying for them. And tonight, Lord, it was more personal because Jesus prayed for us. We are among those who believe through their words. 
we echo the prayer, Father, because those are the priorities. We are to be one. We are to be one. There is unity, Lord. Help us to realize it, to walk in it, to promote it. And to do that by looking at our future home and by making a decision tonight that we're going to love those in the Christian body, whether we feel like it or not. We're going to do that. That's a choice we make because we want the world to really know that you sent Jesus to be their Savior as well. We truly pray that the Word would become flesh and it would be our flesh, that they would see it in our lives. Lord, finally as we close, I would pray for those who don't know that kind of love, that kind of unity that exists. They want to be a part of something, a part of a family, a forgiven family. They want to know if they were to die, they would go to heaven and on the way to heaven have a family around them who loves them and cares about them. And we pray that if some have gathered here tonight who don't personally know Jesus, have never committed themselves, willfully acknowledged Him, that that would be different beginning now. Be different beginning now.